ok yesterday we spoke about two approaches Mesora versus Chakira the value of Mesora is it recognizes the limitations of the human mind the disadvantage of Mesora is it's more Elokeavoseinu than Elokeinu it's less personal and we spoke about Chakira investigation the advantage creates a personal relationship. Whenever you've discovered something yourself, that creates a personal relationship. And yet, if you haven't discovered something yourself, right, as we mentioned by Masora, it's a little bit distant. However, the disadvantage was, how can a person come to understand God intellectually when God is beyond human comprehension? Okay, that's where we left off yesterday. Today we're going to start to discuss, it's going to take us at least a couple shiurim to discuss this, but today we're going to start to discuss the following concept. Does God exist? Can we prove it? Emuna versus reason. Okay, those are the three things we're going to be discussing now. Okay? Okay. So it goes as follows. If somebody says, I don't believe in God, the first question you want to ask is, who's the God that you don't believe in? Tell me what you don't believe in. Okay? You hear, the, you hear why that's the move? Because if somebody says, I don't believe in God, okay, well, what exactly is it that you don't believe in? So now it puts the burden of proof back on them because they have to say what they don't believe in, right? Notice I haven't said what I do believe in, but if you come to me and you sit down in my office and you go, I don't believe in God, okay, what exactly don't you believe in? So you'll hear amazing answers like, I don't believe there's a Santa Claus in the sky, right? So what should your response to that back be? I also don't believe that there's a Santa Claus in the sky, right? And then they say things like, okay, I don't believe, right? And then they'll start to get like more, they, if you force them to get more narrow, right? So having an understanding of what it is that we're talking about makes all the difference. When I say God, this is what I mean, okay? Um, an infinite being from which all existence comes into reality and stays in reality for a particular reason. One more time. An infinite being from which all of existence comes into reality and stays in reality for a particular reason. Okay? So by saying that, we've done two things. Really three, but we're going we're gonna to skip the middle part for now. The first one is we're going to say, what is infinite? Okay, so here's what infinite is not. Um, infinite is not really, really big. Okay, infinite doesn't even mean the most big. What infinite means is beyond the realm of time and space, right? So can you conceive of the notion of infinite? Not really, right? Because our minds, by definition, are mukbal. They're limited to what? To the finite world. Make sense? So everything we can imagine is within the realm of time and space. God is beyond time and space, therefore he's infinite. One more move and then I'll get to you, Ruvain. And, again, aside from the existence part for a second, let's skip to the end. Existence to God is not random. It's not just that he generated existence, but he did it for a particular reason. Why is that important? Because it goes from making God into a what, into a who. In other words, the God that we're going to be discussing this year, 
not only is he infinite, because you could think about infinite as like this infinite thing, right? It's not an infinite thing. It's an infinite who. Not a person, right? Because a person has a defined space. But this God that we're talking about is infinite in the sense that it is, he has a particular reason. You understand? So those are going to be the defining features. God is infinite. Existence comes into reality for a particular purpose. Yeah, Ruben. Always. That's correct. Um, it's notable though there's two types of something being infinite. In, in, uh, in geometry, there's two things that are notably infinite is a line and a circle. Mm -hmm. So generally, when we think of infinite, we consider a line as a time and space which it goes in either direction forever versus right. a circle which keeps repeating itself over and over. So a right. circle is also infinite, but a human can conceive the idea of something. Right. Circle, it's not truly daily. infinite. Uh, right. That's a borrowed terminology. When you think of that as infinite, you think of it as infinite because you can't define where it begins and ends in the case of a circle. Right? Or in the case of, let's say, the line that's going in either direction, you can't say where that line will end because as far as you know, it goes forever. But it goes forever within space. Right? So numbers are by definition not infinite because you can point to them. So when we say infinite, we don't mean how mathematics borrows the terminology. We're using the philosophical internet. Yeah. So is that um, translation of what uh, God, that God is a? No. I think God is, and we're going to use this term a lot, I'm going to refer to God as a reality, not as an existence. And we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. So, uh, so you're saying infinity can't actually exist without being Right. Everything that's natural, by definition, is going to be finite. Every human experience, if it's limited to its humanity, is going to be something that I can... Get into the first cause type of argument as to everything has a cause, what was the first cause, what cause, yeah. Okay, well, that's an interesting question. Right? I haven't gotten to that argument yet, because that's going to be what we're going to call indirect proofs. So right now I'm just dealing with what are the terms that we're dealing with. So God is infinite, all of existence comes from him and stays in reality because of him. Right? And, which means that he's involved and for a particular reason. So far so good? Make sense? Okay. So if somebody says, prove to me that God exists. Let's start off with a couple of things before we get, uh, I'll say that and then we'll get to you guys, okay? Okay. If we could provide proof would it actually matter? Now, some of you are nodding your head yes. Yeah. You're saying that it would actually matter. Well, yeah. I'm going to argue. Well, it depends. If it's physical, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter. Well, I mean, the ramifications of it matter. But if they didn't want to believe it, it would just because he's there. No, he exists. It doesn't matter because you can't prove that. You don't know if he's there or Slow, slow, good, good, good. It's a great conversation. The question is like this. Are we willing to acknowledge the concept of bias? We are psychologically complex creatures. Even when something we know to be true is true, what do we often do? We make unbelievable excuses to show that it's not true. Bias is part of the complex system of the psychology of a person, okay? 
So not believing in God certainly has its challenges. For example, let's say chas v'shalom, you lost a, a loved one, okay? As a friend of mine who's a, an atheist said, he lost his father this past summer, and he said, if I believed in God, life would be so great right now because I would know exactly what to do. I would sit shiva, and then shloshim, and then 11 months, and then yard site, but because I don't believe in God, I have no idea what to do right now. So we went out for burgers, <laughs> which is a true story. It's one of my closest friends in the world. I love him dearly. Just because we have a d different belief system doesn't mean that we can't be friends. And his father lived here in Israel. So he came really to be with his brother for Shiva. And he sat for a little bit. He didn't really sit on a low chair, but you know. Then he said, I got to get out of here. You want to come for burgers? I said, OK, sure. And he's expressing to me while we were sitting there, if I believed in God, life would be awesome right now. So there's no doubt that it has its challenges. And yet, on the other hand, believing in God also has its challenges. What are the challenges of believing in God? Well, if you're Jewish, you gotta wake up in the morning. And that's already annoying for some of us. If I didn't go to sleep until two o'clock in the morning the night before, what are the chances I'm gonna wake up and have a meaningful chakras that I can stay through, right? What are the, ch what are the chances I'm gonna be able to do that if chakras first uh, starts at 7.50 in the morning? Yeah. Or you could go chasidish and then you don't have a problem. <laughs> Am I going to stop in the middle of my day and daven mincha? What about when I get home from work at night and I'm exhausted? Am I going to go to Meirev? And I haven't even mentioned learning. What about tzedakah? What about sending your kids to Jewish schools and spending $25,000 a year on tuition? So there are challenges on both sides. And me and my friend, we have this debate all the time. What's easier, to leave Judaism or to stay in it? He says to leave was the hardest thing he ever had to do because he had to extract himself from the community. I say, yeah, but now you're totally unencumbered. It's a fascinating argument, and I can see both sides of the equation. But at the end of the day, when we talk about this idea of can we prove God, the question is, even if we could, are we willing to admit that it might not matter to us? Are we willing to say, yeah, I know God is real, but I'm not down to believe in this because of the obligations that come with it? That's number one. Number two is when a person has intellectual doubts, it is possible for that to cloud the experience of the soul. Now, I'm not going to explain what that means yet, but I want to get that on record so when we come back to it. The two problems of proof are, number one, if I could prove it, would it matter? Maybe. We all have bias. Number two, if I do have doubt, right, even if, let's say, the, if the proof wasn't 100%, Maybe the experience itself becomes tainted. Okay, questions, comments, reactions. Yeah? You say about bias, but bias would affect both biases, not a one-sided one No, no, again, I'm not, suggesting, I'm not suggesting that bias works only one way. Other I'm saying both. I'm saying there would be a bias towards leaving, there would be a bias towards staying. I know people that stay in the Orthodox That's community. That right, for sure. That's my point. Right. My point is that even if you have proof, right, there's still bias. That's all I'm saying. We'll find out. Yeah. So this is something that I argue with Steinerts about a lot. From my understanding, it appears that Steinerts believes there is a proof to the Do me a favor. Make your argument without quoting somebody else. Okay, cool. I don't believe that you can prove God exists, because I think it defeats the point of Muna. Okay, but you're, that's already a separate conversation. In other words, I haven't defined yet what the word proof means. All I'm okay. saying is that even if you could prove it, 
we have to acknowledge human bias. I can't start to talk about the value of proof without acknowledging bias. So far so good? Okay. Now let's get into what does proof mean. We're going to talk about two different types of proof. Direct and indirect. Okay? What's the difference? Direct proof means I can measure it. Indirect proof means I can only measure around it, but I can't measure the thing itself. For example, do I have direct proof that Abraham Lincoln exists? I don't have, again, indirect doesn't mean less, right? But we have to know what the type of proof we're employing is, right? So for this stender, I can have direct proof. There's a measurable experience here. If I had Abraham Lincoln in front of me, right, that would be direct proof. I can measure it, right? Google, 100%. Because now I'm not talking about Abraham Lincoln. I'm talking about documentation that points to the fact that there was a person called Abraham Lincoln. And it's important for us to establish when we discuss indirect proof, what is valuable and meaningful indirect proof, right? But whatever it is, it's indirect. So as far as I know right now, Abraham Lincoln could be mythology. I feel that there's enough meaningful indirect proof to tell me that Abraham Lincoln isn't just mythology and actually exists. But I have no direct proof of that. Now, it doesn't mean that Abraham Lincoln doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that indirect proof is worse. But it's a different type of proof. Right now, we're just going to talk about direct proof. Yoni. Well, it definitely points to the fact that Abraham Lincoln existed, but maybe that's part of the myth, right? Maybe at some point somebody wanted to make this myth of Abraham Lincoln come alive, so they put it in Lincoln's grave. So would you say the exact same thing about Sure, that's exactly the point. We would have to establish what is called meaningful indirect proof, right? So, and, and that's a fascinating conversation, just not for right now. But obviously, I do believe in Abraham Lincoln. I also believe in uh, Avram Avinu. But would it shock me if in 500 years from now, they actually started asking, well, did Abraham Lincoln exist? Didn't he exist? You know, like, what will constitute real meaningful proof? There are historical events that happen. Once they happen, now it's just up to the historians to write it, right? When I was growing up, I knew for certain that slavery was abolished, right? Because it was a terrible tragedy. It was immoral. It turns out when you get older and you start studying history, that wasn't the case at all. It was really, I mean, many would argue that the North was losing to the South in terms of their capacity to produce because they didn't have slavery, so it was a way of weakening the South. I always thought the North were the good guys, the South was the bad guys, right? You learn things as you get older. History is written by authors, right? Yeah. With bias, um, With bias, bias for sure. For bias, Okay, so direct has an advantage in its experience, right? But in indirect, we've, we, you know, remember, when we're speaking about science, you have to remember wh which terminology you're using for what, right? So when you're measuring something in a lab, that's direct proof. Historians also will apply scientific proof, right? But their, their gauge for what's called proof is totally different because they have to use different resources. Right, so the discipline is different, and because the discipline is different, right, so it has a different set of laws that come along with it. So you would say that direct is stronger? I would say direct is a stronger experience, right, because I'm, because I'm interacting with it. Yeah? Aren't you just describing the, like empirical or rational proofs of hard sciences and soft sciences? Yeah, for sure. Same thing. Yeah? 
Okay, so now we'll come to the problem. The problem is this. If you want to employ a direct proof when it comes to God, you're going to have a hard time, perhaps an impossible time. Because remember, how did we start off this year? What was the definition of God? Infinite, beyond the realm of time and space, who created the universe and sustains the universe for a particular reason. When you start off and you say the word infinite, by definition, what have you lost? You've lost the capacity to measure. To prove something means to measure it, right? If you're speaking about direct proofs, then by definition, you're measuring it. Failure to measure means failure to have a direct proof. So somebody comes to you and they say, God exists. Your response should be, prove it. What's their response going to be back? How could I? You understand? Your response is going to be then, well, then how do you know it's real? Right? You understand? You follow the back and forth? Everyone got it? So it goes like this. Judaism doesn't claim that God exists. So if somebody asks you, does God exist, what's the only appropriate answer? I don't know. No. God does not exist. Nor would I want him to, as we'll see in a moment. If God existed, then the whole game would be over. How could you prove something that doesn't exist? So if somebody says, does God exist? The answer is no. Existence is like the stender. It takes up space. So if somebody says, so Judaism doesn't believe in God, the answer is no. Judaism believes in a God that doesn't exist. But colloquially, we don't use exist to mean as existing. Right, but that's a problem. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, Yossi, that's exactly the problem. Because when you come and you say, God exists, and I know that God exists, you've set yourself up for failure already. So because now you're going to start talking about proof. It's the difference between saying that God exists and I know God is real. Right, exactly right. We will do our best in this year not to say that God exists. We're going to do our best in this year to say that God is real. And we're going to show very soon that that which is real is more important and often more true than that which exists. Okay? So let's start to get into that right now. But actually, I'll wait. Take a couple more questions. Yoni. How is God real if God doesn't exist? The opposite. How is God real if he does? Because you're assuming that existence is real. But here's the thing about existence. Existence is always changing, and it's always deteriorating, right? So when you look at existence and you say, that's real, I wonder why you think that, right? To me, if something is true, that means it's unchanging. One plus one will always equal two. It's why I appreciate math and science. The thing about math and science is they repeat themselves, always. No matter how many times you do the same formula, you're going to always have the same result. And if something different happens, that's called supernatural, or there was a mistake in the process. Right? But if you do the same scientific thing over and over again, it's going to happen. Why? Because it's true. Every single time, the same outcome. Right? So when I look at this table, I understand that right now this table is decaying. It may not be happening before my very eyes, but over time, for sure. Right? So is this table true? No, it just exists. It exists in this form. It existed in a different form. Perhaps one day it will exist in a different form. Right? So you're, you're taking the word reality and you're identifying it by that which you can touch and measure. It's the exact opposite. That which you can't touch and measure in your life is going to be more real than that which you can. But you have to step out, because remember, and this is going to be the challenge, when you only see the world through the scientific lens, you've limited yourself, right? The humanities are there to counterbalance the sciences. And when you lack that yin-yang as a person, you're fundamentally lacking. So let me make the point, and then you guys will see if you agree or not. Give me one second, maybe, and I'll come right to you, okay? Good. It goes like this. If somebody gets down on one knee and they propose to their wife and they say, marry me, I've never secreted hormones in my mind 
with anyone other than you, like the hormones that I have when I'm with you, oxytocin and serotonin and dopamine, it's just a, it's, it's unbelievable. What's wrong with saying that? She's going to say no. Well, aside from the fact that she's going to say no, unless it's like a Big Bang Theory type of uh, proposal. Yeah. Right. In other words, what you did is you took something that was abstract and you only defined it by its concrete. And that's sad. For example, uh, let's take art. Now, I happen not to be into art. I, I was never that guy that was into art. You know, there are people that are like into art. My dad is into art. My dad, when he went to see the Mona Lisa, he told me that he cried. I was like, you cried when you saw the Mona Lisa? I mean, I think she's ugly, but she's not that ugly, right? Like, <laughs> you shouldn't be crying when you see the Mona Lisa. And my father was like, you heathen. Like, he was so annoyed by the fact that he had a son that couldn't appreciate the beauty of the Mona Lisa. And he goes, and when he went to France, and he went into the Louvre, and he saw, the, you know, Monet's water lilies, and he was like, it was unbelievable. And I'm like, I don't get it, right? So for him, imagine if I came to him and I described the Mona Lisa as an ugly girl. I don't know, it's a nice flower, right? What would you say to somebody? If you were an artist, what would you say? You don't appreciate the art. But scientifically, aren't I really just describing what it is? I'm just saying, like, that's what it is. It's color on canvas at the end of the day, no? But it's more than Right, but it's more than that. Science doesn't ask the question, and science is not designed to ask the question. Science doesn't ask the question why. Science is not part of the humanities, right? Science is what comes after the humanities, right? So, or before the humanities, depending on where you're starting from. Science tells you what is and how it works, but it doesn't tell you why it is. It can't speak to the entire human experience, and it's not supposed to. Right? And so what happens is when you have science without the humanities, you lose your sense of humanity. And that's exceptionally dangerous. You understand? Because you lose a fundamental part of yourself. So if somebody gets down on one knee and they only talk about serotonin and oxytocin and dopamine, what have they lost? They've lost the person in front of them. So this is what I hate. You ready for this? How many people in their lives have heard of Rebellion making fun of sports? I grew up. And it was like the thing my Rebbeim did. And this is what it sounds like, okay? I love basketball. I don't know a thing about football. Nothing. I'm done with football. I'm done with hockey. I'm done with baseball. I wouldn't have known about the entire Antonio Brown thing if the Roach didn't tell it to me in the car this morning. I don't know. I'm not holding in this stuff anymore. I didn't know that Antonio Brown was one of the best wide receivers in football. I just heard this morning that maybe he raped a woman. So I was like, okay, say there. This is, not, this is not new, yeah? But this is what I heard growing up. They went after basketball, and that was personal to me. You can't go after basketball. They said, this is what my rabbi used to say to me. If I got together 10 people in pajamas and put two toilet bowls 10 feet up in the air, and they were throwing rocks into toilet bowls, would you watch that? So I'm like, uh, clearly I would, <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Not only would I watch it, I would pay to watch it if they were really good. I might even subscribe to a channel that had exclusively my favorite pajama-clad rock-throwing toilet players, right? They might be on my fantasy team of rock-throwing toilet players. I might really get interested in their lives. Why? So my rabbi would say to me, that's crazy. I was like, what's so crazy about it? He's like, because what are they doing? They're putting a ball through a cylinder. So I was like, if you think they're putting a ball through a cylinder, you've really lost the entire concept of religion. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, think about it. 
if you take a game or anything in life and you remove its meaning, what are you left with? Nothing. Everything, when you describe it, based on just the physical activity, is absolutely arbitrary, right? So it's like you have a husband and a wife. They just got married, right? It's under the chuppah. They're now holding hands for the first time as they're walking out of the chuppah together. And they're going to the cheder yichad, and all of their friends are, carrying, are, are cheering them on, and it's so special for them. And they're holding each other's hands, right? Could you imagine if you came over to them and said, I just want you to understand that all that is is flesh touching flesh. And just from an evolutionary perspective, it happens to be that you're secreting certain hormones right now, but actually you're feeling really nothing. <laughs> Why would you do that to a person? <laughs> And why would you ever take pictures of that? Right? And why would you put those pictures in an album? And why would you feel good when you came back to it? After all, isn't it just flesh touching flesh? There are no feelings involved. <laughs> right? Any time you take the meaning out of anything, you lose everything. You understand? So art is not color. Music is not sound. Love is not hormones. But here's what's important. The reality is always connected to the existence, right? So I would tell you, if you ask me, what's the reality of the hormones? The hormones are the existence. What's the reality? The reality is the love. Science can't measure the reality. It can only measure the existence. Poetry can more better speak to the reality than science can. So if you would read a science book on love, right? So it wouldn't, it wouldn't move you in any way. But if you read great poetry, if you're like a person who really cares about these things, that happens to be I love poetry. If you, if, you, if you read great poetry on love, it moves you, right? You ever had that experience before? Right? Same thing when it comes to art, right? Science can tell you all about the colors, all about the dimensions. Science can tell you how your optic nerves take it in and even how your mind processes it. And yet, all of those things, none of them speaks to the reality of sitting in front of a beautiful painting. Right? Same thing with music. Music, science can measure the cadence of music. Right? They can know when you react to something as music. But I don't know if any of you guys are concert goers, right? But there's nothing like going to a great concert. And if you're, if you're willing to sit and really listen at a concert and not just be a person who's there, but you actually go to the concert, that's a totally different experience than just listening to on your AirPods, right? So when I was in ninth grade, it was the first concert I ever went to. I convinced my father. My father had a hookup because he was in the marketing industry, so he had a hookup to get me free tickets to a band that had just come out. They were the hottest band probably in the world at that time, and they were on this tour called the Dookie Tour. Green Day had just come out, and they were playing Nassau Coliseum, which was a short 25-minute ride from my house. So in ninth grade, I convinced my dad to get me tickets to go to see Green Day live. So it was amazing, right? Problem is, I was like, ninth grade, I was like this tall, this skinny, I was like this tiny little guy, and my friend says to me, let's go to the mosh pit, right? Because we go together. So I took one look at the mosh pit, right? And I saw, because it was the beginning of the grunge movement in the 90s, I saw all these like behemoths. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what Nassau Coliseum is, for those of you from New York? You know Nassau Coliseum is like those Long Island hicks? You know, like, when those guys come out to a Green Day concert, somebody's going to die, right? And it was the first time in my life that I went to the bathroom in Nassau Coliseum. I was used to going to the Coliseum because I used to go there for Islander games. When you go to the Nassau Coliseum for Islander games, so it smells like sweat, right? 
But then I went for a Green Day concert, and it smelled so different. And I was like, what's that smell? Because I was in ninth grade, I wasn't familiar with that smell. I was like, so I turned to my friend, I'm like, what's that smell? He's like, that's Bud. I was like, who's Bud? You know? <laughs> so I'm like, he's like, Uncle Bud. You know? So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to be introduced. But you know, like, uh, but that's the, whole, that's the whole idea, right? You go to the concert, and then you, and then you find yourself in that mosh pit as a ninth grader, and you get out of there really fast because you know you're going to die, right? And then it stays with you. The experience stays with you, right? If I wanted right now to transport myself back to Nice Coliseum, 14 years old, I could do it. Why? Because it's not a scientific experience exclusively. There's a humanity there. Does this make sense so far? Okay, we'll stop here for a second. Yeah? So this whole relation between physical actions versus being behind it, could this sort of be used to explain also, I have a friend who, who claims free will does not exist because it's I'm conditioned. I, I, I'm, I'm almost never going to cut you off, and gonna be a whole but that's going to be like a I month. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a whole thing there, but yeah. it seems I, I, it could be, but I, I can't get there in my head right now. Yeah, okay. sure. Oh, why are you saying that letters like um, have like this connection between describing an experience and then because you're not able to experience that experience, you're describing it scientifically that that I'm saying that the scientific description is only the existence. It's not. It doesn't include the reality, and so you're missing something if you only see it scientifically. So science and humanities are handmaidens to one another, but they need to be, because with, if you're missing either one, you're missing something, right? If you only have the humanities and you don't understand the what and the how, then you're chaser. If you only understand the what and the how, but you don't understand the why, right, then you're chaser. You've missed something. Yoni. Can I use the exact same process to prove that other religions might be true? Sure. At this point, I'm just positing that God exists. I haven't said anything about Judaism or Christianity or Islam. I want you to believe in the notion of, of God because once we speak about God, it'll be natural to believe in the concept of a mission. All I'm saying is as follows, and this is the punchline, okay? The same way that I believe in color, right? But I also believe in art. I believe that the reality is God and the existence of God is the world. As color, as color is to art, the world is to God. As, mu as sound is to music, the world is to God. As love, as hormones are to love, the world is to God. For those of you that are still holding in SATs. Ruben. Um, just for the purpose of getting a better understanding, you say that anything that exists is by definition finite? Yep. And also, what am I saying? Right. And those two things must work harmoniously, right? Because when we look at the existence, we want to know the internal essence of the existence. Not forget religion for a second. Anything that we experience, we're not just, I don't want to experience it's external, I want to experience it's internal. That's why when you hold hands with someone, it's not just flesh on flesh, but there's a human experience there. Yeah? Right, again, right now, I, have, I'm, I haven't proven God. That's what's critical here. I can't prove God. It would be impossible for me to prove God with a direct proof. Because that would be to measure that which is infinite. And by definition, I can't measure that which is beyond time and space. All I'm pointing out is that every human experience naturally tends towards the reality, not just the existence. So this, when, when, when we look at the world, what we can see, and we'll see how we do this, what we can see is, in essence, something that there's an, a true human experience that lies beyond the what and the how. That's why we ask why. Right? If you're a person who asks why, to me, that's exceptionally godly. 
Because when you ask why to something, you're acknowledging that there's a why. Well, why would there be a why? Science wouldn't recognize a why. Science would only recognize what and how. The fact that you ask why, by its very definition, is a soulful experience. Does that make sense? Right, but I don't think he would be able to prove that. He's because he's speaking about an experience. So when somebody says, when you're sitting in an office with somebody and they say, Rebbe, I feel like I'm push taken over by demons, right? So I don't say, okay, well, let's strap you down, right? And let's measure your brain waves and see, right? Because that's not what they're saying. They're saying something more profound than that, right? So psychology is always that middle ground because on the one hand, psychology wants to know the what and the how because it's the science, but it's also deeply concerned with the human experience. You understand? So somebody says, I was taken over by demons. I don't think they mean physical demons have crept inside of their brain and are now pulling the strings. They're speaking to a larger human experience, right? I'm out of control. I'm not the one, I'm not the one pulling the strings. That's important to me. Yes? Rebbe says that the world is to Hashem the same way that art, like paint is to art. Right. Would that not imply that the world is an essential part of God? No, I would say the opposite. Because that, the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the Poel Yotzen. It's what occurs. When a perfect God wants to express himself, the world is what happens. The same way when an artist wants to express himself, the canvas is what happens. Yeah, but I mean, Hashem existed before the world then. But when you say before, what do you mean before? That according to my understanding of our timeline. Well, that's the point. Which is separate to God, obviously. Well, that's the point. So that by itself is a problem. But at some point, it says in a book somewhere that God (laughs) created the world. And that implies that there's at one point the world and yes to God. No. I disagree with that. It implies that before the notion of time, there was no time. And I can't speak from a human perspective about what occurred before time because from a human perspective, I can't understand that. That would imply that we're shoehorning God into the timeline then. No, the opposite. You're shoehorning God into a timeline. I'm saying that God is beyond the timeline. You're saying that God exists before. I'm not willing to say before relative to God. So God always exists. Well, when you say always, what do you mean? <laughs> always. <laughs> always is within time always, no? Always is beyond time. Is it? How does the word always exist beyond time when always is all time? <laughs> Sorry, I, I try not to do that too often. <laughs> yeah, Shmuel. Um, uh, why, but you're describing God like a very metaphysical, how would you like me to describe God? No, like the Chumash and everything describes like very like God is angry. I God did this. God did that. This mm-hmm. before time, like very kind of within time and space, within emotion. Ah, that's a fascinating question. One that we're going to deal with, right? When the Torah uses that type of language, what does that really mean? It might not mean what you think it means. We have to see the Rambam. So far, so good. That's only way you can describe God. Maybe. Maybe. That's the way we've always that's the way we've always gone. Okay. With the last ten minutes I want to do as follows. Guys still with me? Yeah? Okay. What's the problem? The problem is this. If I'm right, and we have to know the discipline that we're speaking about, namely, science can measure directly, again, we're not speaking about indirect proofs now, but a direct proof we're not going to get for God. Why? Because God is beyond measure. Okay? And if I'm right, 
that it's like love and hormones, what happens when someone says, okay, Rebbe, but I don't love that girl, right? So imagine a guy and a girl are dating. Everything on paper is perfect. They have everything in common that a couple would need to get married. Their communication is amazing. Their value system, exactly 100% on the same page. Attraction, absolutely. They've got it all. Only one problem. Neither of them want to marry each other because they don't love each other. I strap them down to a chair and I say, listen to me. I'm measuring your serotonin and your dopamine and your oxytocin levels. This is what love looks like everywhere and you guys are at that baseline. What's the problem? They don't love each other, right? So when a guy says as follows, and it's reasonable if a guy says it, he goes, okay, Reverg, you're telling me that God can't be proven, he has to be experienced. But I don't experience God. You understand? It's like saying I don't love that girl. And I really don't. I'm walking down the street, I don't see God. I'm walking down the street, I'm not thinking about God. When I sit down in Davin, I feel like I'm just saying words. When I learn arcane texts, it doesn't really move me. You understand? So I don't love God. So I'm not in this relationship. You understand the problem with what I've set you guys up for? If God is to be experienced, what if I don't have the experience? So if you're a Sephardi kid who grew up and your mother told you there's a God and you knew that clearly, it was like, yes, I know there's a God because my mother told me, right? And I, I have that like, I have that good like Sephardi sense of like, I'm really deeply connected. I'm not picking on Sephardim. I'm, I'm actually, I, I think it's amazing. We had a guy in yeshiva many, many years ago who came to visit Mavasera. He was in a Sephardi yeshiva. He was a Sephardi kid. He wasn't happy in his Sephardi yeshiva. So his friends loved it here in Mavasera. He came to check out yeshiva. He comes in the morning. He was in Shear. Afternoon, he was in Shear. Night, he was in Shear. At the end of the day, I asked him, how was it? You're going to switch? He goes, Berg, it was unbelievable here. It was the best day of learning I've had so far. The guys are great. The shiurim are great. Unbelievable. I said, okay, so have your mother call the office. He goes, no, no, I'm not switching. I was like, why? He goes, too many Ashkenazi. So I was like, oh, come on. I hate that racist stuff. Like, we're all Jews, right? We can learn in the same yeshiva. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not being racist. He goes, you have to understand. He goes, I do a lot of Averas. He goes, and I see Ashkenazim do a lot of Averas. But here's the difference. When an Ashkenaz kid does an Avera, he says to himself, I don't know if God exists. And when a Sephardi kid doesn't have error, he goes, okay, I didn't have error. Obviously, I'm going to get punished, but like, you know, God doesn't not exist because I didn't have error. He's like, I just can't be around those Ashkenazim. I'm afraid I'll go off the derech. So I was like, that is the wildest Svar I ever heard. <laughs> but honestly, I hear it. I hear it, no? You go, to like, you go to like a regular Ashkenaz school, and they're like, I don't know if God exists. You go to like a Syrian school in Brooklyn, and they're like, of course God exists. I'll kill you for saying God doesn't exist. I'm going to get in my car and drive away on Shabbos now. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> because it's amazing. It's just amazing. I love that. It's so holy. There's something really pure about that. So if you're one of those guys, but say there, you experience God. But if you grew up like me, maybe you don't experience God. Maybe you have times. Remember earlier we said that your doubts can get in the way of your experience? Maybe my intellectual doubts, because it can't be proven directly, are getting in the way of experiencing God. Maybe my bias is getting in the way of experiencing God. So here's the big crunch for today, and then we'll finish with this. Okay? And this will be our lead into the next year. If a child doesn't know if his parents love him, isn't that sad? Yeah? Why? 
why would a child intuitively know that his parents love him? Assuming that they actually do. They're normal, healthy people. But my mother said no to me. I really, really, really wanted to do something, and my mother said no. She's not treating me nicely. And yet, even a six-year-old knows that when their mother says no to them, they still love them. Again, assuming a healthy, normal relationship. Shmuel? I'm not sure what you mean. I'm saying the fact that a kid, if they get hurt or if they're upset or something, they'll run to their parents like a younger child. Right. That's, that's very true. Right? Because there's something, what? About the child, something innate about the child, because they're a child, that naturally relates to the parents as parents. And the mother who just said no, and the child got angry at the mother for saying no, two minutes later will go running to the mother when something went wrong. Right? Why? Because that's my mother. Now imagine if a, an 18-year-old guy comes to me last night and he says to me, I don't know if my parents love me. How would you want me to prove that to him? Who got you there? Right. Well, How'd you get here? Maybe they sent him away. Maybe they sent him away. Ask them why they you were sent here. Yeah. And what would they say? Hopefully. Hopefully they want you to whatever, be yourself, right. whatever. That's right. So there's something innate about the relationship that allows for the experience. And if you have to prove it, how many things have gone wrong in a relationship if you have to prove that somebody loves you, especially your parents? A lot. Okay, so here's what we mean when we say emuna, and we'll finish with this. Here's what we mean when we say emuna. Emuna doesn't mean belief the way we've been translating it the entire time. Emuna is a talent of the soul. Okay? You don't have five senses, you have six. Right? Five senses are all existence. The sixth one is reality. You use that sixth sense all the time, but it has to be cultivated. The same sense that tells you your mother loves you, that your father loves you, the same sense that tells you this is the girl that I want to marry, the same sense that recognizes beauty in art and depth of music is the same sense that experiences God. It's a talent of the soul, and it needs to be cultivated. So when the Pasuk says that we are a chelek elokamimal, that we are the proverbial peace of God, what does that mean? It means that the relationship, because remember, God is not a what, God is a who. The relationship between God and us is the same relationship as a parent to a child. And if you don't feel like a child, that's fine. We have to figure out what went wrong along the way. But know this, the same way any child has the capacity to look inside of themselves and find the love that their parent has for them, because it's a natural talent of the soul, it's no different with any Jew. And that's what emuna really means. We are obligated, according to the Rambam, to know that God exists. We'll talk about how that's possible. But emuna and yediyah are two totally separate movements. One is existence-oriented. The other is reality-oriented. We'll stop here for today, guys.